Welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, August the 19th, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 172. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I'm really happy that you're here today. You might be wondering how hot is it outside there, Fred. Well, it's 81 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 27 Celsius. Today is going to be the best day so far, end of the week, and then tomorrow, rainstorms and everything coming in. Thus, the opening sequences, which showed the rain and some bees hunkered down as they do when they get caught out in foul weather. So, what else is going on? That's right. Tomorrow, Saturday, the 20th, third Saturday of August, is World Honey Bee Day and National, here in the United States, Honey Bee Day. So, that means that if you're a beekeeper, you're interested in bees, this is the time to share with everybody about honeybees, talk them up. Talk about what people can do to their lawns and things like that to help them out here at uh, The Way to Be. We had the entire morning news team out to learn about beekeeping. That was fantastic because they, of course, did the spot on the local news in our county. And that maybe got people thinking about not killing off all the weeds in their lawn because that's unnecessary. So, which at the same time, the garden center in our area is advertising, kill those weeds, get all those weeds out of your yard. But for beekeepers, it's different. Try to influence as many people as you can. So that's about it. Let's get right into the questions. If you want to see what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description because each topic is listed in order with related links and videos to help you understand further for those who want to dive deeper. And uh, it's also available, Podbean, the way to be podcast. So for those who are driving, you can listen. And uh, then you'll have timestamps there to reference the video segments if you want to click on that and come back and see the video. So there you have it. First question comes from Tom, and it says, Good morning, Mr. Dunn. Hello from Shelton, Washington. Avid fan. I started three years ago with vertical Langstroth, then to horizontal hives. I have three hives, all single entrance. I just watched episode number 170. Two hives, uh, the queen is laying end to end. Frames farthest from the entry have 95% honey, but some brood. I suspect that when 5% emerges, they will complete with honey. It's been difficult converting information from vertical to horizontal, such as will the cluster move horizontal? Anyway, a request would be that as you teach, you identify areas that are different. And uh, so I'm happy to do that. So we talk about differences between the vertical hives and the horizontal hives. And I'm just going to say it right out. I know that a lot of people are firmly committed to horizontal hives. And some are even firmly committed to a specific design, like the lands, for example, or the horizontal long Langstroth hive. Others are committed firmly to vertical hives only because that's the configuration that bees would choose if they had a choice. And you can manage bees in both, but the vertical, of course, is more suited to the bees. You know, I know people will say, yeah, but the trees can fall over and then the hive would be horizontal and then, you know, branches break off, things like that. But the most frequently occupied cavities by bees, honeybees, would be vertical if they were given the choice. If you put out traps, swarm traps in the same area, same height, same exposure, far enough apart that they're not in direct shoulder to shoulder competition, but you would find that the scouts would prefer the vertical configurations over horizontal configurations. And so exponentially, they demonstrate a preference for vertical cavities. So why are we even using horizontal hives to begin with? Because they're accessible. 
they're easier to manage. There's no lifting of big boxes. There's only lifting of frames and of course prying up cover boards that might be glued down with propolis. And that's coming up in another video because I did an update video on the horizontal long Langstroth hive. But making comparisons between the two, everything is basically the same um, other than how you manage the hives and of course wintering, which is the question here, will they go horizontal? Bees have a greater challenge moving horizontally through a cavity as winter progresses to access their resources than they do going vertical. And that's one of the differences, for example, between top bar, horizontal Langstroth, so the long lang, and then the Layens hive. And Dr. Leo Sharashkin will press the point that the Layens frames are deeper so that the bees will have honey above them brood below and then as winter progresses they'll migrate up more so than they're capable of migrating laterally so and that's because when they have brood directly under them under the cluster it's just more efficient for the bees inside a tree cavity they would be doing the same thing the brood at the end of the year this time of year for example would be focused at the entrances and uh, that's been consistent here vertical or horizontal when there's a single entrance no venting no secondary entrance they concentrate their brood near the entrance. And then, of course, as you get farther away from that entrance, you have nothing but honey stored. And that has been throughout all of my hive configurations, vertical, horizontal, lands, and Langstroth. Now, the good news about my lands hive is I had some concerns because the last inspection that we did, the frames were full of brood, top to bottom. The good news is they are now starting to store honey at the top of those frames. So there's probably a 10% band of honey going across that's capped and the brood is moving down lower on the frame. So that's good news because if it matches what Dr. Leo teaches and what Horizontal Hives and Beekeeping with a Smile, which is a really good book if you don't have it already, uh, it identifies their movement in wintertime vertically. Then when they get to the very top, if they've consumed those resources, this is the number one heartache that new beekeepers have in spring. That's why I want to talk about it right now. When they move to the top, it happens frequently that people open their hives in spring only to find out that their bees clustered right under that inner cover. That's true whether it's a horizontal or vertical. So Langstroth or horizontal lands, long lang, whatever you have, they tend to cluster up against those cover boards. And with the lands hive, the frames themselves form that inner cover board. And if they don't move over just a couple of inches to get the resources, the honey that's stored there and some pollen that's there, they starve in place because they've committed themselves to brood and there they sit. That's why it's very important in my opinion Dr. Leo would say, do not feed the bees. So if they don't make it, they don't survive winter, they're not acclimated to your area, and that's it, let them go. Uh, another school of thought is that if your bees do make it up there and they exhaust those resources, then you're going to have to have some kind of emergency winter resource for them, or they could starve and you could get that frustrating scene that I just described, which is a dwindling cluster of bees, starved out, bodies in cells, truncated, um, abdomens because they starved. And so I actually recommend emergency feed placement directly above where you think the cluster is or where it's going to be. And that's just an insurance policy so you don't lose your bees in spring. And uh, I understand the, the natural uh, method of keeping bees and letting those that don't survive die off if that's what you choose to do. Um, but I'm one of the people that likes to put emergency feed. Now this year, they did not use their emergency resources. And I used um, Hive Life on it for the first time this past winter. And most of the bees used up about a two or three inch diameter area of it. So they really didn't need it and they still had honey. And I also had added insulated inner covers. So their demand for that resource was less because once they got to the top of the hive, they were encapsulated with a warm bubble, for lack of a better description. Uh, because there's only one entrance and no top venting, they have greater control over the heat, humidity, CO2, and everything else that exists up where the cluster is in winter. That works so well, I'm continuing with that. 
But if we had to choose what's more efficient for the bees, and I understand some people can't work a vertical hive. They just can't lift the boxes. So if it's the difference between keeping bees or not keeping bees and horizontal is it for you, then the goal would be to make sure that their provision is close to those brood areas as possible with full frames of capped honey going into winter. Uh, and hope that they move over just enough and that you insulate the top of your hive so that the bees then on somewhat warmer days have a chance. They break cluster, cluster and the cluster loosens up and the mantle, the outer layers of that, those bees will work on resources around and migrate those to the center and feed and replenish um, nurse bees that are the most critical in winter. So I hope that helps and I will try to make uh, those uh, differences clear and how the management may be different. Um, but for right now, they're, they're pretty close other than pulling off boxes or not pulling off boxes with the vertical configuration. And then with the horizontal, all we're doing is as they need more room, we add a frame. Very simple, two frames, three frames. If you've got a big nectar flow ahead as we do here right now, but the winter can turn at any time, much easier to expand and contract the nest in a horizontal format. So there's lots of differences. Lots of people will be happy to share about their experiences. Question number two comes from Donald, Oberlin, Ohio. I have two hives and I started this year from packages. Both of them have a brood box of one deep, one medium. And that's uh, my winter configuration here for my hives. So both hives have filled these and then have each filled a medium super with honey, most of it capped. I harvested a lot of it to make room and to prevent swarming. As we approach goldenrod blooms and then fall, my mind turns to surviving winter. I think I've confused myself a bit uh, with too much research. Instead, should I leave the third honey super on until it starts getting super cold? And will they move honey stored down themselves? Or should I take a few frames of honey and move them to the brood boxes before removing the supers in fall? And I'm glad this question was asked because uh, it's something is part of your planning for when temperatures start cooling down. Often people wait until the very end, right into October, 1st of November, for example, if they seem like things are going well, and then they break apart the top, they remove their honey super, they put the insulated, the inner cover back on and everything else. But I want you to consider taking off your final honey resources um, while the weather is still warm. And the reason that I say that is your bees need an opportunity to use propolis to seal all those cracks and crevices because you're breaking apart their hive. You're creating leak pads for air. And if the bees don't have the warmth necessary to do those repairs, they're stuck with vented joints. So what I always recommend is get your honey supers that you're going to keep, get that stuff off middle of next month. So mid-September. And then leave the rest for the bees and let them finish chinking up their joints and closing it all in. And then their only airflow area, which they control really well, is going to be the single entrance on the landing board. And that's just because that's what I've arrived at. I've been through all these phases, by the way, of using upper venting, upper entrances, queen excluders. I don't do any of that anymore. And I use a single entrance on the landing board or in the face of the front of the hive exclusively nothing else. And so I want them to have every opportunity to winterize their hive. So that's my answer to that. Question number three comes from Jason, Monroe Township, New Jersey. One topic uh, that I struggled with consistently is entrance reducers. My apiary consists of two flow hives and several traditional 10 frame Langstroth hives. I've done everything from using a traditional wood reducer year round to adjustable metal reducers in the cold months only, to most recently installing strips of aluminum hardware cloth along the entrance. I know in late 2020, episode number 82, you were using a section of rolled aluminum screen. Is this still your preferred method and have you completed your evaluations of the Hivegate system and adapted it to hives in your apiary or Use another or multiple methods, depending on the hive location configuration. I'd appreciate your opinion. 
on what you have found to be most beneficial. Okay, so the first thing I'll address is the, the entrance on flow hives. The entrances are thinner and they're full width. And there is no really good entrance reducer for them. They do provide now a metal. This is the vent side. This is their entrance reducer. It's made out of aluminum and it goes on the front of flow hives. And this would be the entrance you're left with. Do I use this? No, I don't. But they make it and they have it. And so I've arrived at, and I provided a video recently where I took the video camera hive by hive and I showed different entrances during peak production in these hives. And the bees themselves let us know if the, if the opening is too large, they try to purpleize things, they try to block it up. If it's too small, they start chewing at the entrances. And if it's just right, they don't do either of those things. So the aluminum, rolled aluminum screen in those thin openings for the, the flow hives, specifically the flow hive two now, wide and narrow, I use three inch rolled aluminum. The reason I use rolled aluminum screen is because once you bend it over and roll it up and curl the ends in and stick it in there, it holds its place really well. In fact, the bees will propolize the edges a little bit. And because it's screen, the honeybees have the option to propolize the entire screen. And if they leave it open, that means they're happy with the ventilation. So it serves two purposes. One, it keeps the ventilation going for the width of that, because remember, it's very narrow top to bottom. And uh, it provides them a narrow gateway entering and departing so that they have a smaller area to defend when it comes to the robbing and the wasp attacks that are certain to come here in the northern United States. So that part is that. The other thing is, in the past, I've tested lots of entrance sizes for the different hives. Of course, a brand new colony of bees would not uh, require as large an entrance. In fact, they benefit from a small entrance and a small space when they're just getting started. Fewer bees necessary to guard the entrance. Also, less airflow that the bees do not control. When you have a wide open entrance, the bees aren't able to direct and control the airflow through that very well. Same thing with screen bottom boards, unless they're enclosed with a tray, that's a wide open area and the bees no longer control flow of air through any conduit of the hive there. So that's also why I don't use open screen bottom boards. I am a fan of screen bottom boards with something underneath of them so that the debris falls in. And that's a teaching tool to pull that out look at what's on the bottom board and see what's going on in your hive, including dropped off dead uh, Varro destructor mites and things like that. Great teaching tool, but I like it to be completely enclosed. I never use an open screened bottom board. Okay, so what did I arrive at for any size hive year round? And uh, so winter, summer, nectar flow, anything you want. Some people change a lot when it comes to seasons. So they like to close it up in winter. So some people might close down to this size here, which is a half inch opening and then an inch and a half in width. But the optimum opening that my bees and, I, and what I want you to see is bees have choose this wood. So these smaller entrances, they chew the inside here. They did not like it. And uh, another thing is the reason I arrived at the second one from the top here that opening is three-eighths of an inch in height. Mice can't get through that. And then a four-inch opening width. And I've also dropped that down sometimes to a three-inch if they seem to be trying to propolize it. But if you're looking at uh, metric, then that's 10.16 by 0.95 centimeters. So that's, uh, that's it. This one's too large. These are the ones that flip and they have the winter opening and then they have the summer opening. I prefer to leave it one. Look at also that changed the position of the opening to another part of the entrance on the landing board. Why should that even matter? Well it matters because when the bees are working on the inside of their hive they are creating burr comb and they're creating attachments and they're trying to shape the airflow inside the hive including between frames inside above and below. So they do all this work which helps them ventilate travel and guard their hive better. And then if you're doing this, summertime, oh, wintertime's coming, you flip it, now we change the configuration and where that airflow is coming and going from. They're also arranging their brood inside the hive. 
The other thing I do is, of course, which impacts airflow and impacts wintering and summer and defenses is to have a slatted rack in there because the slatted rack has a front bull board or whatever you want to call it. And that helps keep, uh, it helps them defend it. So I thought I would grab a slatted rack over here, but I guess I just don't even have one handy. Aha! Uh -huh. This is a slatted rack. So underneath, this is the entrance. This is where one of these boards would be. Look at this solid piece here, which prevents air from just gusting up in there in the winter time. The other thing is it makes it seem darker. So originally when I started using slatted racks, the claim was that with your deep brood box above that the queen then and the workers would finish off these frames and lay eggs all the way to the bottom of the deep frames. Did that work? It did. So slatted racks work. And what do they do? Talk about infrastructure. They even start to extend what kind of frames, what kind of cells would they extend down here? Mostly drone. So, but they actually use the space. But I want you to know too that nothing the bees do is uh, to work against themselves. So in other words, when they're building comb like that and they configure and they control, they're controlling airflow, warmth, and cooling. So by having a consistent year-round entrance, you're giving your bees time to adapt to that entrance as far as the way they configure all the resources inside. So I hope that makes sense. And that's how I arrived at my year-round entrance three to four inches wide, three eighths inches high. Now some of you have round entrances. I've uh, also used gates to close off the round entrances partially. And then if they appear to start chewing the wood, I'll move that to open it more. If they're gumming that up with propolis, then I'll close it a little more until I find out exactly what size opening they want. And we're testing different opening diameters and even the length of the opening, the length of the entrance, up to six inches on these observation hives that we have. So it gives me an opportunity to see how they use those entrance spaces, diameters, lengths, and everything else. The last part of this was the update on the hive gate. The hive gate, the information, these are the hive gate entrances. One of the strongest things that they did was provided your bees with better protection when it came to defending the colony against wasp attacks and even against attacks by other colonies of bees. Now, if your colony has dwindled, if they're small, if they're queenless, if they're already sickly or something like that, this is not going to help. The other thing that I figured out going through these for myself, and I've not seen the results, the compiled results of uh, the survey that they sent out to everyone that was using these, that's actually being compiled by the educational department at Better Bee. So I haven't heard anything. And maybe people were not good at responding and giving their results. Everything people have shared with me uh, related to these hive gates is that they worked really well, especially those in Washington state where they were losing a percentage of their hives every year to wasp attacks. So here for me, uh, some of the hives I went through winter with singles and others I did doubles. And I'll put a link uh, to this, and there's also on my website, thewaytobee.org, and you can look at the Hivegate study page, and it shows videos and explanations about how these work. But there's an option to use two of these side by side or to go to a single. I've changed to singles for summer and winter. I have a colony right now with a single, and it's maxed with honey. And so all the activities, it does not impede uh, queen Flights, virgin queen flights, drones get through it just fine. And people have looked at these and asked if uh, undertaker bees and things like that have any problem hauling dead bees out. All of those functions work through these hive gate entrances. So they work. I can't give numbers. I can't give stats because I don't have them. Um, and for those of you who have used them out there, it'd be great if you commented in the comment section below if they worked, if they didn't, what you found they were good for. And maybe they didn't change anything. I haven't had anyone say that they were uh, negative or had a negative impact or slowed something down or prevented swarming or, uh, you know, a queen didn't return from a mating flight or something like that. Uh, the reviews have all been optimistic and positive. So that's that on that. That's it for entrances. Keep your entrances the same throughout the year. Uh, here's the other thing.
even with the horizontal hives. And this is, it's a great bonus because I don't use queen excluders. If I were a commercial beekeeper, maybe I would need to. I'm not a commercial beekeeper. So we're back here beekeeping. We can look at our hives and this makes a difference when it comes time to harvesting your honey. Instead of pulling full boxes and just loading them on trucks and you know using lifts and everything else, when you're high production, you're, you're flying through everything. You don't have time to fool with, are there frames of brood here? And is this all honey? So the way I do it is I remove frames that are full of capped honey exclusively. And then those frames that even have a portion of brood on them, those stay with the hive. And uh, so I don't even try to fool with it. The good news is with a single entrance, everything past a certain point and I mark it on the backs of the frames, like the long Langstroth hive. I put a bee and then I point it towards the entrance. That's the last frame of brood. Everything beyond that is pure honey. It could be extracted. Of course, we have to figure out how much we're going to leave for them for winter. 47 pounds, roughly. Uh, they've never even used that here. And those are insulated hives. So that makes a difference too in how much you're going to consume and how much you need to leave on there for them. So next question, number four. This is from John Menical. For backyard beekeeper, is the extra cost of an electric extractor worth it? I know it's a value judgment question. And uh, is a radial or tangential better or more efficient? Okay, when it comes to efficiency, now here's the thing. Again, I've been keeping bees since September of 2006. I had a hand crank uh, extractor that was tangential. And you might be sitting there going, what is tangential and radial? So... We'll just do a really quick visual for that. So if you're looking at radial extractors, one of the advantages is the tub is the same size and the backs of the frames are going out. So there's an axle in the middle and they spin like this. And there's centrifugal force that flings all the honey out of these hives, right? Uh, and that's because the cells even, they're not straight. They're not at a 90 degree incident angle with the surface of the frame. They're at a 13 degree tilt up. So that's why the skinny part goes towards the center and the backing of the frame, the top of the frame faces outward. So it slings all the honey out. The big advantage to the radial extractor is that they have more frames in the same size basin. Probably needs a stronger motor. I don't know, it's not the one that I use. So the next one is tangential. Well, those are the ones that they've got three or four or six um, cages that face out so that when you have your frame in it, it is slinging and spinning this way. So the centrifugal force pulls directly away from the face of the frame and from the face of the foundation. I like that. And I've noticed that uh, I have a hive, not a hive, I have an extractor where I can put my frames in tangential, which is this way, or radial, which is this towards the center hub, skinny part towards the center. Uh, I've tried it both ways, and I like the tangential better. I like to have it slinging straight out of the cell. The honey comes out faster. The honey comes out at a lower RPM. So I thought that was really good. So in other words, why change? Why not just do it that way? Some people have reported that, for example, depending on the foundation that they've used, the tangential method it puts more stress, more centrifugal force on the foundation. So if this were a wooden frame and you've inserted foundation in there, some of the foundations have been reported to flex and even flip out or partially break away from their frames. So, which they have not done so much when it comes to the radial extractor arrangement. So, so there's more force direct against your, especially with the deep frames. This is a deep frame. Uh, more force against the foundation and risk of them blowing out. I've never had that happen. So I'm just passing on what some people have said happens. And because I don't need to load 20, 30, 80 frames. Um, I don't need the radial extractor and I don't need these really big ones. I know people have ones that hold 80 frames. So I'm small scale. Now, is it worth it to make the jump to the electric motor over the hand crank. Well, when you have grandkids, it's fun to turn them onto the hand crank and make them sit there spinning things. 
But if you want consistency and if you want to be able to put frames in there and turn on the extractor and walk away and do other things while it's spinning and extracting, then uh, the electric ones are the best. They have rheostats on them. You turn it and it, it adjusts the amount of power going from the motor and so the RPM's coming off of it. I, I might be wrong. I don't know all the electrical terms, but it has a controller so that you can get it up to full speed. And uh, if they're a little bit unbalanced, then you can keep it nice and slow until they sling out enough that uh, you balance them up. So that's probably the other drawback too. If you have just a few frames, two, four, six, eight, um, if any of those frames are really thick and heavy and others are thinner or incomplete, you'll have more unbalanced problems than when you have the radial extractor and you can put a whole bunch of frames in there. Then of course you you know, you balance out, you know, the heavy ones opposite each other, the light ones opposite each other, and so on. And I think it probably all balances out better, and you may have uh, less load on the bearings and everything else. So, is it worth it to me? Absolutely. If time is money, then, yeah, it saves a lot of time, it's consistent, and uh, you don't end up with a really big right arm and a really small left arm from cranking your extractor. So that was number four. Number five. And by the way, a lot of those extractors, oh yeah, sorry to back up here before I get on to number five. Would I buy the electric extractor I currently have again? No. Why? Not because it doesn't work. It works great. The motor's great. Everything's fantastic. The basin is good. Everything is perfect. I would buy the larger extractor that can handle lay-ins frames. Because if you get one that handles a lay-ins frame, it can handle all the other size frames. So I ended up buying one that handles the largest deep standard Langstroth frame. And so uh, I wish I had waited and figured out that I could have bought the lay-ins for roughly the same price and then been able to handle any kind of frame size because I'm in a pickle with my lay-ins frames that are all full of honey. I'm going to be making cut comb and probably crushing strain and that's not as efficient. Okay, so back to question number five. This is from Charles. Let's see, I was shooting some video this morning at one of my hives and I noticed four to five bees stationary on the landing board facing the entrance and fanning for several minutes. I've noticed other bees facing away from the entrance and fanning. So my question is, when facing the entrance, are they fanning in airflow into the hive or the opposite? And when facing away the entrance, are they fanning airflow going into or away from the entrance? Any thoughts? Okay, the thoughts are, it's really simple. Uh, when bees fly, they move air from their head to their abdomen. The same is true when bees are stationary on the surfaces inside the hive or on the landing board. So whatever direction they're facing, the air is coming over their head, over their thorax, and down their abdomen because that's the efficiency of their wings. So, added a quick little drawing here. So the air flows here, they tend to kind of hunker down, they grip on the surface. I know this is not a great drawing, and they point their tail a little bit down. Their abdomen is pointed down, and the air flows over the top. When you get inside the hive, you'll see that bees that are facing the entrance in there line up behind one another, especially if it's really hot. And then what they do is they'll draw air in and pass it over their bodies and it goes all the way up inside the hive and comes back down. And then you see these bees facing into the hive. This is on the interior surface, not on the outside. And they fan over the top of each other and move the air out. And then those that are outside on the landing board pick up that same air so their heads are facing the entrance and they continue to carry it out. There's another interesting thing because the studies have been done and observations have been done of the bees inside the hive lining up one behind the other. Let's say there's four or five bees in a row. They're kind of massed here. Whichever one senses the most warmth, the most heat over the top of it when they're trying to cool a hive, those that are in the cooler airstream will move over into the hot one and then they'll help accelerate the air across and out. And it moves at about four to six miles an hour. How do I know? Because I used an anemometer and I measured it. Another video that I never launched and put out there. 
but uh, the bees move to the warmest spots and it's rare uh, based on my observations to see a bee on the landing board facing away from the entrance so facing out away from the hive and trying to fan into the entrance now they'll do it in the entrance itself but i've not seen them try that outside on the landing board but we do see them on the landing board facing the entrance and fanning helping to continue to draw that air out and away and uh, it's really interesting too after there's been a rainstorm or something you see how quickly they dry the landing board in the area where they're venting and where the bees are lining up to move the air but the air movement is always from the head over the thorax and down past the abdomen because that's the way their wings work so i hope that helped and they're very efficient at moving air around. And I was asked to look more into whether or not drones contribute to venting and moving air around and cooling or warming the hive. And so we do pay attention with the observation hives. And I look now because I got that question. So I look now intentionally at the uh, drones that are on the brood areas, usually because that's where the nurse bees are and that's where they're picking on them to get fed. And uh, even on really hot days recently, uh, out there right now, the observation hives are in the 90s. And so those that are fanning across, especially when you see a large percentage of the worker bees inside the hive fanning, I've never seen a drone fanning and trying to help get in that airstream and collectively move air through. So I've seen them in the airstream not fanning their wings. So I haven't seen that. So that's a that's a low grade for the drones contributing to venting and air movement down to the brood area. You see a lot of them just sitting around doing what drones do. So and for those of you who don't know, drones are the male bees. So question number six. This is from Michael. Uh, this spring I took advice. I took advice from one of your many helpful backyard beekeeping videos and set up two swarm traps that were better bee nuke five frame boxes double stacked and i captured a swarm in each i relocated them to my bee yard and as of today they're going strong i had to change out a couple full honey frames from each just to give them room looks like i will not be needing them as resources for my other hives fingers crossed this year it's not over. I made a top for each that is well insulated and can take a rapid round. For those of you who don't know, rapid round is a rapid round feeder and you can put dry or liquid feed up in that. So, so if it's needed, if they're going to last the winter, Nashville area, and do you close off the two one inch diameter vents on the back of the Better Bee bottom box or do you leave them open for moisture? And I'm glad that uh, Michael mentioned this. I made a drawing today. So these are, I want to make sure I'm not sharing anybody's email here. When you look at this on the bottom, this is what the nucleus box front looks like that come from Better Bee. And by the way, they are my favorites. They're made out of wood, they're pine. They have a hole in the front. You also have the option to purchase the kind that has a detachable bottom board. And then of course you've got an entrance reducer on that. But when it comes to the nucleus boxes, I really like these. They have a fixed bottom board attached to it. And at the front, migratory cover. This is a profile view of that migratory cover. And what we're talking about is the front has an entrance here with a control wheel on it. And then here's that entrance. But in the back, they've included these two holes that are just above the center of the back. And the reason I think that they did that, and they do, they do cover them with screen, so it's not an entrance for the bees, but it provides extra ventilation. And I think that's because they're nucleus boxes and that they're designed for people to put nucleus frames in them and sell that as a unit and then it goes through shipping, which means somebody's stacking all these boxes together. If you notice these overhangs on these migratory covers, they will butt up against each other and prevent those holes from being blocked. So in other words, you can't push another box directly against it because that migratory cover has that overhang there, three quarters of an inch that keeps that airspace. So I think in shipping, if you're moving a whole bunch of these, you would need those two holes in the back. So what do I do with all of my nucleus boxes that come from Better Bee that have those holes? I use hot glue and I take a piece of wood and I put 
wood glue. So I use Type Bond 2 or Type Bond 3. Uh, they both hold up really well. And I use the hot glue as tack welds on the ends. So I take that little uh, half inch by two inch by four inches, whatever it is, and I stick that up there and the hot glue holds it in place while the tight bond takes, uh, takes to the wood and then seals it up really good. And I don't like those holes in the back and I seal them right up. And you have to be careful, of course, when you do that, do it with your migratory cover on top so your little block of wood that covers them butts up against that. You don't want to make the mistake of putting it on too high or too big a piece of wood and then your migratory cover doesn't settle over it. So I put the migratory cover on and then I butt that little piece of wood right up against that and glue it into place. You can even use brads or screws or something else to attach it on there. You don't have to use hot glue. But I don't leave them in there and I take them off because I think the whole purpose of those holes is for shipping. Question number seven comes from Denise, Tabernacle, New Jersey. Suggestion for helping deter or destroy ants. We use a top feeder and the ants are marching up the hives into the sugar water. Help. Okay, ants are something that come up a lot for a lot of people. I don't have any problems with ants here. But I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you some ideas of things that you can do. I'm not a big fan of diatomaceous earth. Um, you can sprinkle that on the ground around your beehive. Diatomaceous earth, those are diatoms, freshwater diatoms. Uh, they're food grade. If you're going to have them around, that's what I would use, but not for this. Once it rains or once there's heavy dew, that's defeated. That stuff depends on staying dry and lacerating the exoskeleton of ants. Do not, please do not put diatomaceous earth inside on your inner cover or anywhere else. Outside the hive, on the ground, okay, like you find an ant hole or something and you just fixate it on diatomaceous earth and you want to use it and do that. But ants come from long distances. They are social insects, just like honeybees are. They have a queen, just like honeybees do. They even swarm. So, Ants find food resources. So the first thing you want to look at is maybe find a way to seal up that rapid round feeder so the ants can't get to any of that sugar syrup. So that's number one. Take away what is causing your ants to seek out that space. Now on the flip side of that, ants are always looking for cavities. You lay a piece of wood on the ground and leave it there for a week, chances are you've got ants living underneath of it. So they do move under sheltered areas. So honeybees, they're in hives that are kept warm and the ants come in there to, you know, soak up the warmth and have a protected environment. And what better place than honeybees? That's why we find them on the inner covers and things like that. Not necessarily inside the hive itself and not necessarily doing anything too terrible to the bees. But it's unsettling to see them in there. People don't want to deal with them. So there are a lot of ways to keep them out. Some people use ant moats and they'll have uh, legs from their hives and they'll stand those in old coffee cans or things like that and then they'll put water in. Then the water dries out or you mow your yard and the grass clippings blow in there and just created a bridge for the ants. So there are a lot of things that you can do and what I wanted to show here is people that have flow hives already know this but they sell the bases by themselves and flow hives have adjustable feet. So the base of that, uh, it helps you to level it up and everything else, but the new Flowhive 2 Plus version has ant guards built in that, that screw right onto what I think these are half inch diameter bolts. They're threaded and then the bottom piece screws on first and then the top piece screws down and then you leave the top piece up above this bottom reservoir enough so that ants can't bridge it. So they have to go up here, crawl over, and then this is where they get interrupted. And you can put something like um, mineral oil in there. You can also put food grade silicon grease in there. And uh, because it's capped like that, it's out of the sun, so it dehydrates slower. Those, some people are not going to want to, of course, buy an adjustable leg. Those are the best ones that I have, and I don't have problems with ants. But the other part of that would be if I just had threaded legs, then I would smear my silicone grease all around these legs. Ants aren't going to want to walk up that. 
and uh, you can even smear it on the wood if you've got a base or something like that. I definitely would not be putting um, silicone grease or anything like that where your bees are walking. Uh, if you remember, I keep all of my hives well off the ground. So they all have some kind of metal post and those posts, I would grease those up. The other thing is you want to make sure and weed whack and trim all your tall grasses away from your beehives if you're trying to keep ants off because they'll walk up the grass. Anything is a potential bridge to getting into your hive. So the other thing is uh, if you've got legs, see the problem is some of the people have these wooden bases. They've got their bottom board. That is an integral part and it sits right on the ground. None of my hives are like that. So you have to consider the proximity of your hive to the ants and how well they can get to it. If your ants are on the ground, you've got an uphill climb. Because I have skunks and things like that, most recently I had a skunk come out and try to get into my hives. It was thwarted because all of my hives are 17 to 18 inches off the ground as far as the entrance goes, and skunks can't get to anything anymore. So. If you had iron T-posts, if you had pipe, if you had something else that supports your hives that is metal, you can just grease those metal stands and you have no ant problem. So that's the other end of it, probably a, more of a hassle than a lot of people want to do, but if, you're, if your hives are sitting on the ground, maybe consider a new type of hive stand. My favorite hive stands of all time are out of stock, and those are the Lysen adjustable metal hive stands and they're zinc coated and those are the best all you have to do is put in two by fours and they hold they hold multiple hives they're adjustable and because they have metal legs if we had ants we would grease those legs problem solved ants don't like to be pheromone interrupted and they don't want to get their feet sticky and bogged down so if other people have cool methods for getting their ants under control uh, moats and stuff. Again, by the way, if you're putting water in a moat, so if you're using Tupperware or something like that, and you put your legs in it, and you'll see that ants can walk across water. So the surface tension of the water allows them to stand on it. Spiders too, they zip right across. How can you fix that? Oh, I just happen to have Dawn Ultra Free and Clear, which by the way is good for mite counts but it's good for a lot of other things. You add a little dish soap to that water, breaks the surface tension, increases the wetting ability, and ants go to walk across it like they think they can, and down they go, and they drown in it. Now, if you don't attend to that, you'll have enough dead ants and dead insects in that water that they'll eventually walk over the carcasses of the dead, so you do have to do some kind of maintenance. But this is just some ideas, get the wheels going. If I, had, uh, if I had ant problems, I would probably be out there experimenting and trying new things, but I don't. One time in all the years I've kept bees, I had ants going up into a hive, and I thought they were carrying out my larvae, and instead they were carrying their own eggs that were moving out on their own. So, emergency averted. Question number eight. Richard, Clifton, Colorado. You mentioned, I think, that you were previously Navy. As an older sailor myself, I'm wondering what your job was. A CB? Haha. <laughs> Just kidding. But seriously, would you explain about scout bees? Are they foragers or? So if anybody cares about my time in the Navy, I served for 20 years, three months, and zero days. And I was non-traditional in a lot of what I did. I had what was known as a base rating. So I was a hull technician, which are the ship's... Uh, Jack of all trades. They're the welders, the carpenters, the pipe fitters, the steel workers, sheet metal benders, laggers, firefighters. I was a fire marshal even. I was a crash and rescue on-scene leader for flight decks. So firefighting is part of my background. I did a lot of different things through the years and I changed jobs, profoundly different jobs. But I will fast forward you. I had a lot of years at sea. I was in a seagoing rate, all technicians or seagoing people. And uh, later, I met a guy in Beirut, Lebanon, that was doing non-destructive testing and inspection. So this guy was certifying high-pressure pipe systems, structural propulsion, nuclear, conventional, these inspectors. These were pretty sharp people. It just happened to be from my own rate. So I pursued non-destructive testing and inspection. I went out to school in San Diego, California. Long story short, I ended up being an examiner. That's a level three in non-destructive testing. 
and uh, that means you can no longer be tested and you in turn certify inspectors and operators that uh, inspect surface and submarine vessels, including deep submersibles. So I have a lot of really interesting research and development experimentation going on. I was involved in ultrasonic imaging technology. And at the end of it, I became the senior instructor for the U.S. Navy's non-destructive testing and inspection program. And they also loaded me up with the senior instructor of all HTC schools, which included advanced welding. So I was technical advisor at San Diego City College for the 4956 class uh, nuclear components weld program at Great Lakes, Illinois. There, does that help you? So I drank a lot of coffee. I stared at the ocean. I served on both coasts and I've been all over the world. And I'm super happy to be here. See what I did? Be here. So yeah, that's it. That's my Navy thing. Now, scout bees. Scout bees, are they foragers as well? Well, scout bees are older bees. They know the landscape and they zip out and they find generally resources for the other bees. They fly out earlier in the morning. They do collect resources too because they're sampling nectar and they're collecting pollen and they're bringing that back. So what happens is bees are economists. So what they like to do is they uh, don't send out full force foragers all at once. Those who are getting resources for the hive scouts go out first and they're low in numbers. And then when they find a resource, they come back, they do a waggle dance, they share the resource. And then if there are enough bees in there that uh, want to go out, uh, that find the resource valuable to what the colony needs at the time, now they'll go out in larger numbers. For example, a scout might land this time of year on the landing board of a smaller colony of bees that doesn't seem very strong. And then that scout will get past the guards maybe, and it'll get some of the honey from that hive. And then they'll zip back and they'll share that honey, and then they'll come back with a whole bunch of foragers, and that's when the forces increase, and now you've got a mob scene on your hands where they've all gone in. So the scout is kind of the advance for the colony of bees and uh, they aren't necessarily focused on getting resources because they also scout out long before your bees decide to swarm. So in other words, right now I have a hive that I can hear the queens piping. And what that, what that means is they are capped in their cells. So they've got queen cells and they either have already swarmed or they're about to swarm soon. Scouts go out in advance of that happening inside the hive and they search far and wide for cavities to occupy. That's where, as the early question was today, they find something like a, you know, a trap, a swarm trap in the woods, on the edge of the woods, wherever. And if they locate that, then they're going to come back and share that information. And you might think, since the scouts found it, since they think it's suitable, they don't actually make the decision to move into that until they've departed from their resident hive with their queen and they're in a temporary bivouac location. Once they're in the temporary bivouac location, then the scouts that know about these other cavities that they've been campaigning for, they take other scouts with them, they inspect, they go all over. So during that scout trip, they're not gathering resources. They're not after nectar, they're not after pollen, they're exclusively scouting. So they are not always the same, although scouts can then later double as foragers. So it's kind of the duty of the day kind of thing. But uh, so those are kind of the differences. Foragers are after food, nectar, and protein resources from flowers. And the scouts are finding areas and also finding cavities and looking for resources to exploit like weak colonies of bees. That was the last question for today. So here's the fluff. We did the, um, I did a video so that I ran out of time and couldn't share with. So the next video that's coming up, I'm showing what happens after we've had a period of cold weather, after the rain has fallen, and uh, the bees have been kind of cooped up in their hive for a long time, and then we get a sudden warm spell and things dry out. This is when you could walk by your beehive and it looks like they're about to swarm. All of a sudden, there's hundreds of bees in the air. So what I did with this upcoming video, and I already have the footage, I just have to edit and get it to you guys. 
but uh, they were all looking like a fire drill. So fire drills are when bees are making preparations for swarming and they're coming out all in big numbers and they're going back in. Another reason that you would see a lot of bees flying in front is when there's a sudden warm up, which is what happened. So I did slow motion sequences and I did standard speed sequences. So you can see and hear what that looks like. They're not preparing to swarm. But the only way to know for sure then would be to look inside the hive and see if we still have eggs. Because in preparation for swarming, the queen would be reduced in her diet by her retinue of nurse bees and they would chase her around and cause her to lose weight so that she's capable of better flight, which means she's not been egg laying. So if you do a cursory inspection of the hive, and that's what I try to demonstrate, kind of a quick inspection where we don't look at every frame, we look specifically for eggs and how and where to find those. So then once we find the eggs, we know the queen has been laying and she's still in lay within the last three days, unlikely that they're making preparations for swarming. The other thing I would look for in the brood area would be, of course, queen cells. Now, the hive that I've got that's about to depart is a observation hive, of course. So, and here's the thing. This is why I don't want you to feel bad. When you keep your bees, someone mentioned they're keeping ahead of swarming, preventing swarming by adding boxes and things like that. If your hive fills up this time of year, just ahead of a nectar flow, even though we have storms coming in, just adding a box may not stop that. You've created more space, that's good, that's one of the triggers, but if it doesn't already have drawn comb, they may not engage in comb production at a time when they're already demonstrating that they're preparing to swarm. So if you're going to expand the space, if you're going to add another box and you're trying to head off an imminent swarm, then you need to have drawn comb ready for them to fill and work right away. And that can stall things. Storms can stall things, but you also kind of need to find those queen cells. And if they're fully capped, you're down to days, if not hours. And you need to get the queen that's in there, out of there with a bunch of those bees and create a nucleus hive as an insurance policy so that when they do produce their new queen, if she flies out and does not come back mated and they end up queenless, you have the resource hive to put back in. The greatest risk in that scenario is that you end up with another hive that you didn't plan on having. The good news is if you have those small nucleus boxes, it was demonstrated by my bees last year that I could do swarms and divides and things like that into small five frame deep nucleus boxes, even going into September and have them build up enough resources to survive winter. So, that's the fluff on that. The other thing is I went out to check my salt drinkers. So I have quart drinkers out for the bees. Next to freshwater sources, I have one teaspoon of sea salts per quart of fresh water in these secondary drinkers. They were all empty. Every one of them is being hit by the bees. So I filled all those up this morning and I checked them just an hour before I started to do this presentation and the bees are all over them. So their, their demand for minerals and salt right now is at a high point. So for those of you who like to experiment, you've already got your fresh water out there. This is not in place of fresh water and please don't add sea salts. Those of you who are feeding sugar syrup, leave your sugar syrup as water and sugar only and then provide minerals and salts separate, free choice, as you would say. Okay, also don't forget, it's National Honey Bee Day, World Honey Bee Day, so you should know that as a beekeeper, so you can be the one to tell people about it and uh, explain the importance of the bees in your neighborhoods and try to campaign with every person who cares to hear you talk about your bees. Uh, what else is going on? And uh, that's it. Watch for the upcoming long laying video. Enjoy the slow motion sequences that I'm going to close out with, and I hope you got something out of today. And thanks for being here with me and spending your time. Please click the thumbs up so that you'll know that you've seen this video. Thanks a lot. Have a great weekend.
So as a closeout bonus reel, I'm going to show you some of the chaos that can happen at entrances after weather clears. When it's cold outside and it's raining, your bees are cooped up and they don't like it this time of year because we have goldenrod, we have clover, we have nettles, we have asters coming in, and the gold rush is on both for pollen and nectar. And this is the Long Langstroth Horizontal Hive and it is gaining weight rapidly. So in an upcoming video this week, you'll be able to see what's going on inside this hive and you'll learn quickly that they're not making preparations to swarm at all. There's an Asanoff gland going there on the right. Oh, she got pushed in. But there's so much activity that occurs when the weather does break that often new beekeepers think their colony is about to swarm. What they're really doing is getting all the resources they can while they can. So thanks for watching today, and I'll let you watch the rest of this as a bonus sequence. You'll see lots of drones that we see there. Up to 20% of the colony could be drones. And yes, there will be slow motion sequences. So you can slow down the chaotic activity and see exactly what's going on and learn quickly that bees are not as graceful as they seem when they're moving fast. Watch for collisions on the landing board, lots of activity incoming and outgoing, and I want to thank you for watching today. Enjoy these sequences and the music. Have a fantastic weekend.
Mm-hmm. <laughs> 